Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for all the warnings you give us so that we may stay safe in you and stay away from those things that harm us. And Lord, those dangers are always out there. But as we'll learn later, Lord, uh, we are safe with you. Uh, You give us the tools to grow in you and to stay strong and to be able to recognize those things that can hurt us. Pray that you bless this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Christian gave me a joke for you. I'm not sure if it's funny. What is a king without a kingdom? A queendom. But then again, I'm sure most everybody's house is that, right, in reality? So, let's start. So, to review... We're going to do Jude 16 to 25 this morning. But to review, Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote the book as a warning to all believers about the false teaching that was happening in that day. Uh, a lot of it was springing up in his time. Uh, as we spoke last week, Second Peter was the book preceding Jude by some amount of years. I don't remember exactly how many. But it always spoke of the false teachers as a thing of the future. But Jude says when he starts his book, they're already here. They're here right now. You need to be careful need to watch out for them. Now, he was originally going to write the book because he wanted to talk about the faith that they had in common, which would have been completely different. I would have liked to read that one too. But he felt compelled by the Spirit to write a warning about false teachers instead and their prevalence. And he talked about these teachers coming in unawares. They snuck into the church, but he comforts believers by letting them know that God was aware of them and that just as he judged people in the past he was going to judge them in the future. And so he gives three examples of how he's going to judge or how he judged in the past and how he did it all in his timing. (coughs) Now, the first example was how he judged the unbelieving Israelites who escaped from Egypt, how they were unbelievers. They went with the believers, but in the end they were judged. And you can read throughout the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can read about all the judgments that happened on the Israelites because of their unbelief. Now, the next one he brings up is the fallen angels who left their proper domain, or they left, their, they left heaven. And they left heaven in order to come down and essentially copulate with the daughters of men. And they created a hybrid, half-breed, man, giant thing. Uh, the Bible doesn't say specifically just that it was not natural. The third thing that he judges is Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, while the Bible includes many sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude specifically mentions the fact that they were judged because of their homosexuality. And Ezekiel brings out the fact that they were very prideful about their liberties that they were taking. (coughs) Now, next in verse 8, he calls them dreamers. He calls them dreamers because just like there are people today we're talking about, oh, God has given me this vision. I've got to have this $7 million jet, or I've got to raise $7 million, or God's going to kill me. All these visions that people have today, it's nothing new. Just like there's nothing new under the sun. False teachers aren't coming up with anything different, and actually it's the same thing. They're just new people to deceive every generation. And so these dreamers are saying, I've got this vision from God. You should follow me. Now, the next thing they do is they speak evil against those God has put in leadership, and they speak evil of the angelic realm. And again, I don't, as I mentioned last week, how they speak of the angelic realm, I'm not positive. But whatever it is, it's <coughs> something for which they are judged for. Now, the one thing they do understand is how to be natural, how to be a natural man, because... Scripture lists three things, the natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal man. Now, these are natural men. They're not saved. So all they do is they understand the instinct of the natural man. Now, last week I brought up the fact that the deer's natural instinct when he sees headlights is to freeze. And that natural instinct kills him most of the time. Well, that natural instinct for the false teachers as well is eventually going to destroy them. (coughs) Now, as we get to verse 11... Again, this is review from last week. We see three attributes of false teachers taken from the Old Testament. The first is called the way of Cain. 
Now, the way of Cain is that Cain typifies a way that certain men follow in. In that, he brings unbelief and empty religion. It's not seeking God's way to God. It's not following the path God has set up and ordained. It's following what you've decided to do. Well, Abel gave a blood sacrifice, but I don't really like a blood sacrifice. I'm going to give vegetables because it's a lot less messy. There's no blood involved. I'm not going to skin anything, but these are good vegetables, so I'm going to give this to God. And God said, no, that's not what I wanted. God said, I want something in faith. Now, it may have been that God didn't want vegetables. We don't know exactly. But the key is, it says in Scripture that he lacked faith. He did not give God an offering of faith. Now, the error of Balaam, he was guilty of a great sin. Uh, his sin was, in many ways, compromising everything for money. Now, he also deliberately led others into sin, and that's really the worst thing you can do. If you know what's right and you don't do it, that's one thing. But if you know what's right and then you lead someone else into sin on top of that, uh, today's vernacular, you're screwed. Uh, it's not a good thing. But he was willing to compromise everything for money. He was willing to merchandise the gifts and ministry that God had given him and sell out, sell others out. He was using the spiritual to gain the material. <coughs> and the certain men Jude were warning about, they had the same heart. Now, the rebellion of Korah was a rejection of God's appointed leaders. When they spoke against Moses and Aaron, they were speaking against God. And again, if you remember, Korah goes up with his band and they say, you know what, Moses, you and Aaron take too much on yourselves. We're also God's people. We get to do some of this stuff too. You don't need to just be the leader by yourself. And the first thing Moses and Aaron did is they dropped to the ground. They said, we don't want any part of what you're saying. We don't agree with you. We're going to let God make the case and make the decision about who's in charge. They said, it's not up to us. They completely stepped back. And they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. You all bring censers, which is what they would use to, on the offering, so something that God would receive. And then Moses said, and we'll bring censers. And then the person that God has not received, the earth, God's going to do something new, and the earth's going to open up and swallow them. So they all come together. They meet it that morning. Like I said last week at the OK Corral, and they're wondering what's going to go on. And all of a sudden, the ground opens up and swallows Korah and everybody with him. And then fire comes down from heaven and consumes everybody else in the camp of Korah who was with him in that rebellion and destroys them. So Korah, he rejected the authority and the authority of the people God had put in charge. He spoke evil of dignitaries, <coughs> of those in charge. Now, the next thing they bring up is spots and blemishes. He says, these people are blemishes in the agape feast that you have, where they would come together and they would eat potlucks and then they'd have communion together. And the idea was like those little rocks under the ocean that you can't see, and yet a ship comes through and it gets wrecked on the rocks. Or another picture that they have is little pebbles, like in a pebble of pebbles and rice or some other food that you would have and you take a bite and it cracks your tooth. And that's what these false teachers are compared to they're also compared to clouds you see the big puffy clouds in the sky and you go oh good there's going to be rain but then there's no rain that comes <clears throat> so what they are is they look big they look like they're going to offer something but they lack content these false teachers they can't offer anything they can't offer spiritual nourishment because they have none to give they're also compared to autumn trees without fruit that are twice dead so they're trees that have been essentially not producing any fruit. The Bible says you will know them by their fruit, but if they're not producing any fruit, they're obviously not Christians to begin with. <clears throat> also called wild waves of the sea. And again, this picture was of after a storm, all the scum and the driftwood and all the garbage that washes up on the shore. This is what they're being compared to, wild waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, all the foam and garbage. That's, that's what they offer. It also calls them wandering stars. And this is really a picture of the angels because stars don't wander, but the angels in Scripture are called stars. 
And so because of that, those angels that wandered from their proper domain, as we said earlier, they're going to be judged in the lake of fire. And that's the same destiny for these false teachers. And we see again in verse 15 where it talks about in the book of Enoch how there's ten thousands of saints coming with Christ to judge the ungodly. Again, showing that they're not going to escape judgment. And that finds us in verse 16 where we are today. Excuse me. It says, these people who will be judged... They are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own gain or for their own advantage. Now, verse 16 is connected to the previous verse. When the Lord returns to judge the ungodly, he's going to come to judge their words and their works. They've spoken against him and they are doing things, works. (coughs) Excuse me again. They're doing things that are leading others astray. Now the word grumblers is the word in Greek murmurers. It's a Greek word I can't even try to pronounce right now, but it means one who discontentedly complains. And in context in this here, it's against God. And it's only found here in the Bible, by the way. And the picture is that of a low rumbling discontent. I remember watching, I grew up watching Star Trek, the next generation. And there was an episode where the crew would, in different parts of the ship, they'd hear this low rumbling. It sounded like a lot of people talking. It was a big multitude, it was, and I can't even do it. But they'd stop, and they'd go, what is that? And they'd look around, and they couldn't figure out what it was. And eventually, this is a nerdy example. But what it was was they were hearing the thousand people that were on the ship in the future. There was a time loop. But imagine the grumbling discontent. This is the same kind of idea found in Exodus when Israel murmured against Moses. It's not just a grumbling discontent of the thousand people on the enterprise, but imagine a grumbling discontent of two million people that Moses is leading. Now, not all of them were unbelievers, but the unbelievers had a profound impact on the believers to where they convinced them to complain and to murmur. And they were murmuring against Moses and against God. So these people are convincing, these false teachers are convincing people to murmur against against God, against things that, you know, may, not should we really murmur against anything? shouldn't murmur against anything. But the root for that word is another Greek word I can't pronounce. And again, it's the same idea that I just mentioned. It's in 1 Corinthians 10.10, 10, and it talks about that murmuring in Exodus. <coughs> now, if a false teacher can make you critical of your pastor or church or even dissatisfied with your situation, you become susceptible to be led into false doctrine. And this is the start of it. It's the murmuring. It could be, why did Eric have to wear a purple shirt on Sunday? I mean, who does he think he is that he could even pull off that color? Or why would he say something else I might say later that you dislike? Or why did he tell that joke at the beginning? That was dumb. That wasn't even funny. Why why is he letting his kids tell jokes from the pulpit? You know, it could be any minor thing that you bring up that can plant a seed of discontentment. And those are the things that, if you let it grow, it causes a root of bitterness and discontentment, and that can, that can shipwreck you, which is what, you know, that's the goal of the false teachers. Now, it says they're fault finders and complainers. Fault finder is the same word as complainer, depending on your, um, your version. And they are characterized by looking into the faults of others. Now, in this sense, it's negative. There can be a a place for constructive criticism, but that's not what they're talking about here. At my work, when we go to visit other buildings sometimes, we're told to look for the good things. What's the good thing that they're doing at their warehouse that you can take back to yours and make it better? And I'm really bad at this because I go and I go, Oh, their sign's crooked. My signs aren't crooked. Or their board's crooked. And, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Or th- their steel is dusty. You could white glove mine or something like that. We're, we're encouraged to find the good things. And I, I did that once. I went to another warehouse and I went, oh, you'll never believe this warehouse in L.A. It was a dump. 
And they're like, Eric, you're not supposed to find the bad stuff. You look for the good stuff you could take back. And I was like, I couldn't find anything. But, <clears throat> but that's the point. They're, <laughs> they're looking for you or encouraging you to find the bad things. Oh, I can't believe, you know, so-and-so did this. Oh, why does Eric's wife have a nose ring? I'll tell you why, because I asked her to get it, because I like it. In case you were wondering. <laughs> Third thing they do. <coughs> excuse me. Third thing they do, they walk after their own lust. So <coughs> they're following their own evil desires. This goes back to the natural man following his instinct. They're following after what makes them feel good and what's easy for them to do. And then it says they boast about themselves, or in another version, they mouth great swelling words. Now this goes back to 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 4, and I brought this up against last week too. It says there, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, these teachers, they mouth flattering words, not just to make you feel good, although that's a good part of it. They want to make you feel good. They want to make your ears tingle a little bit to where you're like, oh, I like that. That's a whole lot better. And again, as I brought up last week, that's Joel Osteen. He makes, makes things sound good, makes you feel good about yourself. Not that there's anything wrong with being positive, but he's... He is incorrect in the way he does things. But they also like to be flattered by words, and they, and they puff themselves up. It's like, you know, puff the chest out, and they boast about themselves. But it is, uh, instead of conviction and truth, it's all about, again, what makes you feel good. Now, when we go to verse 17, it says... But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. So he goes from descriptions of the false teacher to let's see what the apostles said. Now, the word remember comes up 160 times in scripture. And the word in Greek, <coughs> there's a couple different words for it. But they all essentially mean the same thing. Either hearken back, King James, to what you were taught or Take heed, remember what you were told, you've got to be careful. But either way, it's remember something you've learned, you need to take it to heart. And I'm going to bring you three examples in Scripture besides the one here. Because he says, remember what the apostles said. Now, in Matthew 16, 9, it was right after he fed the 5,000. And, you know, they're going across the, the lake in the boat. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the... Uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they go, oh, great, we didn't bring any bread. And he said, guys, do you remember what just happened two hours ago? If I wanted food, the Father's going to provide it. He's all, that's not the point. The point is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is incorrect. That's what you need to be aware of. And they went, oh, okay, got it now. You know, he wanted them to remember an event to spark something for them to apply in the future. Now, Luke 17, 32, it says, remember Lot's wife. It's a very short verse. That's the whole thing. Three words, remember Lot's wife. Why? What did Lot's wife do? She looked back. And it wasn't just that she went, there's Sodom being destroyed. It implies not just a visual looking in disobedience, but her... It, it says before they left, they lingered. They didn't just linger in body, they lingered in spirit. They wanted to stay. It was hard to leave home, even though home was wicked. But her heart lingered too. And it lingered to the point where they were almost to the gates of Zor, the city they were fleeing to. And she turned around, and she turned into a pillar of salt. So <coughs> the point is, as you're going forward in your walk, don't turn around and look at the world because it's just going to drag you back. Now, Acts 20.31 is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. It says, 
Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And this is him telling the elders, there's going to be ravenous wolves who come in and destroy the flock. And again, this is apropos because that's what Jude is talking about. Those ravenous wolves are here. They're trying to come in and destroy the flock. And so Paul, and then this is probably 20 years, 30 years before Jude was even written. But he's warning them. And these false teachers are sly. They're going to try to sneak in. So we need to remember the behavior they exhibit. So when he says, remember, he says, see what they're teaching. Now remember what the apostles taught. Now what did the apostles teach? The word of God. And it's important to remember that the word of God is always the answer to the dangers in and out of the church. When Jesus was tempted, he answered with the word of God. Everywhere you see someone succeeding over temptation, it's because they relied on the word of God. They didn't rely on their own strength to get out of it. A lot of times we can think we're stronger than the devil and his devices, but we're not. We have to rely on what the word says. (coughs) Now, the apostles, what's one thing they said? Verse 18, they said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Now, what is scoffing? And again, I know what it is, but I had to look it up for an exact definition. Speaking to someone or about something in a scornfully derisive or mocking way. Synonyms would be mock, deride, ridicule, ridicule, sneer at, jeer at, jibe, taunt, make fun of, poke at, laugh at, scorn, laugh to scorn, make light of or belittle. Or you could simplify it by going (coughs) like that. A lot of times when you'll explain your faith to people, that's their reaction. And that's scorning in its simplest form. And, or it could even be that, well, they call it a knowing smile, but that knowing smile that someone gives you when they think you're an idiot. Um, But that's kind of what the idea is. Now, what will they be scoffing at? If you look back to Second Peter, that again preceded Jude, the scoffers are mocking that Jesus will ever return. It says in Second Peter, verse uh, chapter three, verses one to seven. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So these scoffers may reject God's coming and future judgment, but it says they willfully forget it. It's not that they don't know, and it's just like Satan. Satan knows he's doomed, but he's trying to take as many people with him as possible. He knows what's coming. These people know what's coming. It's not an accident. They just don't want to think about it. It's like, well, everybody here has sped on the freeway at some point, I think. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But it's like speeding on the freeway and going, well, I'm not going to get caught. They just, you're speeding down, and all of a sudden, there's the lights, and you've got to pull over, and you go, well, I didn't know you were going to pull me over. Well, of course he's going to pull you over if he's there, as long as he doesn't have a more pressing engagement that he's got to get to, but you're a lawbreaker. But we all think, well, some people think that if you speed, you're not going to get caught, just like these people think because of their sinning, because of what they're doing, they're not going to get caught. Now, they willfully forget because, again, they follow their own ungodly desires or their lusts. They live for the flesh or they live for what feels good. (coughs) And I think this is also interesting because a lot of times we take that living for now or living for whatever we feel as uh, it could be materialism or experiences. But really, uh, I just watched this documentary a couple weeks ago. It was called Minimalism. (coughs) And... 
I identify as a minimalist because I don't like to own stuff. But that's not who I am. I am a Christian. My life is in Christ. If I like minimalism, it's because I don't like distractions. But a minimalism is no different than a materialist when there is, it's, it's a matter of the heart. Now, some people can own tons of things, and those things mean absolutely nothing to them. It doesn't distract them from their walk, and there's nothing wrong with that. For me personally, those things are distracting. But minimalism is just as much a, or can be just as much a lust of the flesh as materialism can. And again, I'm not, well, materialism is definitely a sin. Having things is not necessarily a sin as long as they don't have you. But it has to do with your contentment and where God has placed you. Now, Jude wants us to expect mockery just as Paul reminded us in 2 Corinthians that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, he wants us to expect it. Those who want to please God will always suffer the sneers of those who don't want to please him. Uh, There's a verse, I couldn't remember where it was, but it says, they're going to be, it's my vernacular, they're going to be puzzled why you you don't follow after them in their ways, essentially. They're like, well, we're doing all this fun stuff or what they consider fun. Why isn't he following after us? But that's going to be their question. Now, verse 19. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. So I mentioned, I think I forgot to mention this morning, the the book, he speaks in a lot of triads, or he speaks in a lot of threes. And he has three here. He says three things about these false teachers. One is they cause division. Two is they follow their natural instincts, and we've talked about instincts already. And three is they don't have the spirit. Now, the first one is they cause division. Again, if you look at this book in other places, a lot of these things are the same, but they come at them in maybe a different angle. Well, they're divisive this way. They're also divisive this way. They follow this natural instinct or they follow this natural instinct. They they mention a lot of the same things, but he gives examples in here. (coughs) Now, This is not just causing division in the church, which they're going to do and we spoke about, but they will also separate themselves from others as far as lifting themselves up as more righteous. They will not, and forgive this example, but in the Catholic Church, in the past, I'm not sure so much now, but the popes separated themselves far and above the laity of the church. They were like, oh, I'm, when I speak, I'm ex cathedra. It's from the mouth of God. God couldn't possibly use you because you're just a commoner and you don't know the word as well as I do. So they, they would separate themselves from the common people and thinking that they were better. It's not just the Pope. It was the cardinals and all those people. That's, that was their mentality. Now, the next thing they do is they follow their natural instincts. And this is why in the New King James it says sensual. It doesn't describe the sexuality necessarily as much as just, again, the lust of the flesh, the instinct that they follow. It describes the person who lives only by and for what he can get through his physical senses. And again, this can be materialism. This can be experiences. And again, there's nothing wrong with experiences because God has given us this world to enjoy. But this is what they live for. Uh, their motto could be, if it feels good, do it, or how can it be wrong if it feels so right? Those are sayings from this time frame for us. This would be the same, and again, this is actually the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 2 for the natural man. Now, the third one, they do not have the spirit. That means they're not saved. They're not Christians in any sense of the word. A Christian has the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. He, the Spirit, was given to us to guarantee our salvation. It says in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. I have three other verses to go along with that. Ephesians 4.30, 2 Corinthians 1.21 and 22, 
Second Corinthians 5, 5, all talk about being sealed with the spirit, with him being our guarantee of our inheritance, of our salvation. <coughs> now, he says this, and then it begs the question, how can you tell if someone even has the spirit? And again, as Pastor Bill brought up several weeks ago, you know them by their fruits. You know by what they do, how they're acting, and the descriptions that Jude gives us. Now, we have all this information about these false teachers. He's given us 19 verses of description and their future judgment and all these things about them, all these things that they do. So what are we supposed to do about these false teachers, and what do we do about the dangers that they present? Verse 20 and 21 answers that. And The first thing is, we need to look inward. It says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. And the first thing you need to take note of is, is that it says, building yourself up. You are responsible. We are responsible for our own spiritual growth. If we're faltering, the blame lies with us. It doesn't lie in the teacher of your home group. It doesn't lie in the pastor or the elder or even your mentor. It lies in us. We're the ones who are faltering. You can have the absolute perfect environment to grow in and to learn in, but if you're not willing to learn, it's the old adage that says you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You have to be willing to drink the water of life and grow. Now, Jude has shown us the frailty of men. He's shown us how deceivers infiltrate the church and that we're not supposed to entrust our spiritual growth to someone else. By all means, everybody who comes up to this pulpit or teaches a home fellowship wants you to grow. But it's not... It's not my fault if you don't. If I'm giving you the word, it's not my fault if you don't accept it. Now, how do I get built up? It says, build yourself up. Well, how do I do that? (coughs) I was watching Tomorrowland with my kids. I think it was last week, maybe Sunday, last Sunday. And in the, it was an interesting movie. It wasn't bad. But in the movie, there's a daughter talking to her dad. And... She's a very positive and upbeat girl, and her dad's kind of the opposite. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's not necessarily negative, but he's just not as upbeat as her. But he tells her, which dog you get, when she's leaving, which dog are you going to feed today? She goes, I'm going to feed the good dog, the good dog, Dad. I'm not going to feed the bad one. And he says that because he wants her to be upbeat. He wants her to be positive. He says, don't worry about the negative stuff in the world. I want you to be upbeat. Now, the good dog for us, is our spiritual life. The bad dog is our flesh. If you want the good dog stronger, you have to feed him. If you want the flesh to die, you've got to starve it. Now, we've been given a valuable resource to feed our spirit, to feed the good dog, and to grow up in the faith, and that's the Bible. We all have it. And it says in Acts 20.32, and again, this is when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and this is a great monologue that he's giving them, if you want to read it. It's in Acts chapter 20. He says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. The word of his grace is able to build us up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, we have an inheritance of salvation, but if we're faithful and we're doing the things he wants us to do, and we're in his will, we're going to get a reward as well. We're going to inherit that as well. So we not only will inherit salvation, but if, as I said, we're being faithful, we'll inherit a reward. And that's because we stick with the word of his grace, which is able to build us up. Now it says in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, I'm sure you all know this as well, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It also says in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And that knowledge is found in his word. Now, if you wish to be encouraged and challenged and grow in your walk daily, 
You've got to read the word. You've got to feed the good dog. We have the resource. We just need to make sure we're using it. When we're at work sometimes, <clears throat> and we have computers, and we have all sorts of resources at our disposal, but to do my job, if I'm not... I have to get uh, products out in the morning, and I have to get them on end caps, so I've got to do certain things and put them in a certain order, and I've got to look up emails, and just I have all these paperwork I have to print out the first thing in the morning. But if I don't take, and it's usually about 20 pages or so of stuff I've got to look at, if I don't take those resources, I can't apply them to what I need to do. So if we can't take the resources he's given us, how are we supposed to know what we need to apply to grow in our walk and to, and to build ourselves up in the faith? Now, the next thing, it says praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, what is praying in the Spirit? Three times in Scripture, we're told to pray in the Spirit, and Jude is one of those times. The other times are 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen, where it says, So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. Then in Ephesians 6, 18, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So the Greek word pray in, as far as pray in the Spirit, can have several meanings. It can mean by means of, with the help of, in the sphere of, in connection to. So with the help of the Spirit, by means of the Spirit, in the sphere of the Spirit, in connection to the Spirit. And the whole point is, <coughs> praying in the Spirit doesn't necessarily refer to the words you're saying. Rather, it refers to how we are praying. If we're letting God... Now, when we pray, a lot of times we ask for needs, and there's nothing wrong with that because we're supposed to. He tells us to. But we're supposed to pray with the Spirit's leading. Now, I know that in my life, there are times where I make it a monologue, and I pray... And I get up and I go. But that's not what it is. Prayer is a dialogue. So you sit down and you pray. And then you listen. And I know that that, that can be uncomfortable sometimes when we have group prayer. Because a lot of times we're like, well, nobody's praying. I guess we should just close it up now. And that's our mentality. It's just what happens. It's who we are. But Sometimes we need to just wait a little bit longer because that's when the Spirit wants to speak. Maybe he wants to wait five minutes so that we're praying and thinking about him and meditating on, on prayer and just praying quietly. That's sometimes what he wants for because that's where the Spirit comes in and does what it says in Romans 8.26. It says in Romans 8.26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses because we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. So it's not, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm told to open a prayer sometimes. And I'm like, I have no idea what to pray. I'm, my mind is a blank. And so sometimes I sit there for 30 seconds or so wondering how God wants me to open. And then he'll, he'll bring something to mind. And I'm sure you guys have experienced that at some point too. But... A whole point of praying in the Spirit is praying according to the Spirit's leading. It's praying for the things the Spirit leads us to pray. And sometimes he brings up things we don't think of. Now, I've made, in the past, I have made lists of people to pray for. And you know that list can be pages long if you keep writing everything down. And I still write things down sometimes. It's usually for immediate prayer needs, though. But a lot of times when I pray, I just sit there, and I'll pray for those, and then I'll just wait. I'll go, okay, well, Lord, I don't know what to pray for, so please bring someone to mind or something to mind. And as I sit and wait, things come to mind. And then I can pray according to the Spirit. You're led by the Spirit as to what you need to pray for. But again, sometimes we can be in such a hurry that we don't sit at his feet to listen as much as we, we should. Now... To be simple, praying in the Spirit is to let the Spirit guide you in prayer. If you don't know what to say, listen longer and let him tell you what to say. Uh, this is a quote from uh, a website. Praying in the Spirit should be understood as praying in the power of the Spirit, by the leading of the Spirit, and according to his will. Now the next thing is keep yourselves in God's love. How do we keep ourselves in God's love? 
that almost makes it sound like we can lose his love if we step out of it. But Jude doesn't mean live in such a way to make yourself lovable to God because you can't do that. He loves you because that's who he is. He will always love you. He'll never love your sin, but he'll love you. But what he means is keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, what it means is to keep yourself in harmony with God's ever-present love. Now, what does that mean? That sounds eclectic a little bit. While nothing can separate us from the love of God, according to Romans, we can certainly remove ourselves from, from receiving the benefits of it. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, he was continually loved by his father. But what did he do? He removed himself from those blessings for a time, didn't he, when he walked away? So keeping yourselves in the love of God to keep in harmony with his love is to follow his will for your life and not your own. Now, a lot of times, uh, that song by Carrie Underwood was Jesus take the wheel. A lot of times we're like, Jesus take the wheel. Like, oh, but don't turn there. And we take the wheel back. That's what we do. But if we want him to take the wheel, he's gotta, we've got to let him steer and not keep taking over. And, it, and we're all guilty of being stubborn. Lord, I don't want to go there today. But we remove ourselves from the blessings he has for us in whichever instance we choose to turn away from that. Or we take the steering wheel back. We're still blessed because we're saved, but we can miss all he truly has for us when we're disobedient to whatever his will is. Now, the last thing he mentions is, as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And this is referring to the coming of Jesus. When he comes again. Now, when we keep what Titus 2.13 calls the blessed hope alive in our heart, it effectively helps keep us in the love of God because we want to be ready for his return. We want to make sure that we're not giving our faith away, but that we're constantly looking up. <coughs> I've said this before, and I always need to remember this as well. Every couple of months, this phrase pops out at me. But every day when you wake up, you need to keep in your mind's eye, perhaps today. Maybe this is the day he's going to return. And there's times when I've gotten upset irrationally for no reason, and I've thought, oh, gosh, I just blew it. I had perhaps today this morning, and by lunch it was gone. But we just need to go, okay, I made a mistake. Okay, Lord, you can please return now so I don't make the mistake again. But we just want to have it completely in our minds. You don't want to be the servant who is unprepared for his master's return, as it says in that one parable. The second thing we need to do because of the danger of these false teachers is look outward to those around us who have been influenced by these certain men that it talks about. Verse 22 and 23 says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now, I like the New King James Version translation better here, and it says this. On some having compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. I like the reason better because it doesn't take out making a distinction, which is there in the Greek. And what that's saying is, make a distinction, use wisdom. What kind of person... Are you talking to? How do you need to talk to them? Does it need to be a harsh rebuke or does it, will, will a soft answer break a bone in that case? Now, use different approach to different, different people. <coughs> and while the first group should be confronted with mercy and compassion, the second needs to be confronted more forcefully. But the guideline is it should be done in fear. And that's not they should fear you. That's you should be fearing God when they're ta you're talking to them. Because you should not have an attitude of superiority when you do it. Now, I made a mistake earlier this week, not thinking. My son was asking me something, and I don't remember exactly what it was. But it was to purchase something. I was getting a drink over by the fridge, and I, he said something about money. And I said, well, we don't have it because it's called a paycheck. And I said it's something like that. And I wasn't thinking when I said it. I hadn't intended it to be rude. 
but it was, and it was with an attitude of superiority. And again, that was the flesh unchecked because I wasn't paying attention. And again, and thankfully my wife called me on it because I probably would have ignored it. But, uh, and I had to apologize to him for it because that wasn't my intent, but we've got to make sure again, in Ephesians chapter four, you do all things with the, uh, you speak the truth in love. Now, as an example to the harsh and the strong way you have to, to talk to people, I'm going to use my kids again. Mariah was the most compliant child we have ever had. She, I don't you think, ever received discipline from a spanking until she was well over two years, maybe even three years old. She didn't need it. I could say no. And she'd be like, okay, I'm done. She never did anything. Even when she was a little bit older, I think she was five or six, she had done something. I think she had stolen something. And we didn't have to be harsh with her. We just said, this is what the Bible says. This is what you did that was wrong. And she completely broke down on the couch. We didn't even raise our voice. It wasn't, I mean, she broke down. She didn't need that. But Christian, (laughs) completely different. He received his first discipline much earlier and he needed it. But thankfully he's mellowed out now, probably because of that discipline. But he needed a more forceful approach. That's just how it was. There's nothing wrong with that. Different people are in different places. You just have to be able to discern or make a distinction with wisdom as to how you need to approach each person. And again, that comes with prayer which is one of the things we use to build ourselves up in the faith. Now, (coughs) by looking inward, we protect ourselves from the deception that's out there as we build up ourselves. But by looking outward, we show love for our brothers and sisters in Christ who may be walking towards those cliffs of error. Now, I think it's significant as well. Jude doesn't tell us to attack those certain men who are a danger to the church. Instead, he tells us to focus on our walk, and to help others affected by those certain men and to focus on God. We simply pay those men no attention except where it's necessary for warning. Like I brought up those names of people. I don't talk a lot about them, but I say, look, this guy's bad. He mixes his lie with the truth, and it sounds good, but it's not a good thing. (coughs) We let God take care of them, and he's given us those three examples in the beginning of the book that their judgment's waiting. And he gives us an example in the middle of the book where he says, the Lord's going to come with 10,000 of his saints to judge them. So he's got it. We don't need to do anything about that. Now verses 24 and 25 to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen. So Jude's letter, filled with warning, filled with judgment. In today's society, very negative, not very positive. I don't want to hear that. But as we spoke last week, you can't have a salad bar religion. You can't pick and choose what you want. You can't go to soup plantation and go straight to dessert. You've got to have the salad first. You've got to have the stuff that's conviction and will help you grow in your walk. And then you can have the sweet stuff. You can have Jesus's love still. You can have his mercy. You can have the good feelings that go with that, but you got to have both. You can't pick and choose. Yet Jude doesn't close his letter on a downer, but he closes it with encouragement. He closes it with a God that keeps us from stumbling. And yet at the same time, a God who needs us to put forth work. It says in Philippians 2, verses 13 to 14, work out, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So keeping us spiritually safe is God's work, but you can always tell the people he's working in because they're also working. They're not sitting doing nothing. They're actively pursuing their salvation. Now, when I say salvation, they're not working for salvation. If you look at salvation, the word in the New Testament <coughs> There's, also, there's always three tenses of it. There's a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. The past tense talks about our justification in Christ Jesus, how we are saved. We are justified by his sacrifice. The second salvation, when it talks about it in a present tense, that talks about our sanctification. 
how we grow closer to Christ, how we rid our lives of the things that pull us away. The third future tense has to do with the glorification of our body. This rotting thing that I'm standing in right now will be renewed and the Greek uses the word metamorphos and changed into the new body that we get. Those are three tenses. But the word here is the sanctification one, the salvation that we work for so that we can become more like Christ. God doesn't call us to simply let the Christian life happen to us. It doesn't work that way. We have to work. It's a partnership. God partners with us. I was looking up on the inner. I like to hike, and I was looking at climbing mountains, not super high ones, Mom, don't worry. But I happened to look at, well, maybe Mount McKinley is the one I was looking up. But I'm not going to because it's really high. It's not called McKinley anymore either, I discovered. Um, <clears throat> but I was looking at all these things they say, and it's a list of like 50 things to climb Mount McKinley. You have your ice pick, and you have a 200-foot-long rope, and you have this and you have that. And if you consider mountain climbers, they connect in with each other because if one loses his footing, he won't stumble and fall to his death, hopefully. But in the same manner, if we are connected to God who will not stumble, then we cannot fall. He will keep us safe. He can be that lead climber who follows the way. It says Jesus in Hebrews is the pioneer of our faith. That's Hebrews 12.1. He leads the way. And as long as we're connecting ourselves to him, we're going to be safe. It's now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He will keep us from stumbling. Jude is a book of warning, but it closes with supreme confidence in God. Dangerous times should always make us trust in our mighty God. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, I do thank you for your word. And you do care so much for us. And you give us warnings galore that we can heed so that we don't stumble and fall. And even though I know that we will, I also know that you will pick us up. If we stumble, it's because of ourselves. But Lord, if we don't stumble, it's because you have kept us standing. Because we've leaned on you. Because you are the pioneer of our faith who keeps us going. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to have the mentality of perhaps today. Help us to build ourselves up in the faith by studying your word. Help us to pray in your spirit and follow your leading. Help us to keep ourselves in your will, Lord. Following your will. And Lord, I pray that you would bless each individual this morning, that they would go out. And just... Encourage their brethren, and if necessary, Lord, warn those who may be in error. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.